4: We are here today again with our guest, Ken Babcock and Dale Humberg to continue our conversation about waterfowl harvest management here in the United States and North America. And we are moving into the uh, late 1960s. We have depressed waterfowl populations in the 60s that have led to all sorts of discussions and surprise to no one, we begin to get into some debates about what waterfowl harvest regulations actually need to be in response to some of these. So Ken and Dale, thanks again for joining us here. uh, and ex- these extended co- and fascinating conversations.
1: Glad to be back. See hey, Mike.
4: So, Ken, I want to jump right to you as a reminder to people who've listened to the up other episodes, or if you haven't, I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen to these. They're they're a fascinating listen on the history of, of waterfowl harvest management in this great country. And we, ha- we have now a, a period where where Ken actually becomes an active participant in these discussions, the late 1960s. Uh, so, Ken, I'm going to kick it right to you and have you talk about that era. When you first came in, I believe you, you told us you... you began working for for Mississippi the state wildlife agency was it was it called Mississippi Department of Wildlife at Fisheries and Parks back then, or was that before the name change?
1: That was the Mississippi Game and Fish Commission at that time. Mississippi Game
4: and Fish Commission, and so somebody in that commission uh, saw fit to hire you. Um, we can—that's maybe a discussion for another time. <laughs> but uh, tell us about your first year when you came into the into the Flyway system.
1: Sure, be glad to, Mike. And uh, it might be interesting to. The people at Ducks Unlimited, the gentleman who hired me into that job was, uh, at that time, the youngest uh, state wildlife agency director in the United States, one Billy Joe Cross. Thought that might have been the case there. Yep. Billy Joe Cross ultimately became a regional director and a a, a supervisor over regional directors for Ducks Unlimited and uh, did a great job for DU as well as uh, other aspects of the waterfowl community. Uh, And... You know, I came in at a time and I, I'll never forget my first flyaway meeting because I walked into the meeting and there were people that I had studied just a few months ago and, uh, at LSU, the people like, uh, Art Hawkins and, uh, Frank Belrose and Larry Yon, uh, with the Wildlife Management Institute. And I was totally in awe. Uh, but it v- very quickly learned that, uh, uh, the way people in the state of mississippi or louisiana or arkansas where i had grown up uh looked at waterfowl and waterfowl management and waterfowl harvest regulations entirely differently than 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 the people did where i was used to uh i, I, I came in right in the middle of a of a lot of consternation among the states depending on whether they were a breeding area or a migration area or a wintering area whether they were a state that harvested a lot of waterfowl, a lot of waterfowl hunters uh, who had high annual average harvest, to those that uh, were very few waterfowl hunters, uh, harvested very few birds, and the average uh, success rate was was pretty low. Uh, and all of these differences led to people viewing the way that they were treated in terms of the regulatory process uh, a lot of a lot of strife uh, among the states uh, the flyway councils uh, worked really hard to try to deal with these things and uh, uh, i would say again while there were tough times it did lead to uh, a, a strong foundation that i think the waterfowl management uh, uh, profession is built upon today but uh, one of the things that, that occurred during this period is within the flyway councils, many of them uh, had uh, committees they call planning committees to sort of lay out the long-term vision of what they wanted for their flyway councils, and uh, they would break this down to individual states. And within the flyway council that I was dealing with, obviously the Mississippi flyway council, there was a, a a decision made that there would be an objective of maintaining a minimum of seven million breeding mallards from the breeding population survey done each year in the summer. Uh, And if the population went below that level, that the waterfowl hunting seasons, the duck hunting seasons would be closed. And we found ourselves in a situation in the mid to late 60s where breeding populations uh, were declining. They were staying pretty low. Uh, the habitat conditions in the breeding areas were not very good, and there was great concern. And we reached a point in the late 60s uh, where it appeared that the, uh, everything that was in place for that breeding population survey, now this was, this was in the winter, this was in February at the winter meeting of the Flyway Tech section and ultimately the council. Uh, so it was before the breeding population survey had been conducted. But in looking at data from previous years, trends, looking at anticipated harvest, uh, it was all the, all the points pointed to the fact that the uh, uh, breeding population of mallards from that survey was going to go below the 7 million number. And so the technical section made a recommendation based upon these estimates that uh, the waterfowl season for the coming year be closed. The reason this was done in february and before the survey was actually done was that the surveys were done usually in may uh uh, put together in june and the flyway councils met in august and didn't think there would be enough time to to get the word out to hunters if, if that occurred that way so we thought as a technical group we had a responsibility to bring this up surface this at that time and uh uh, it led to a lot of consternation among the states. Ultimately a couple of years later, it led to withdrawal of some states from the flyway council, from the deliberations with regard to uh, how waterfowl regulations would be set. But that's another story that we can get into when we start talking about the seventies, because it, it led to a solution to a lot of these problems, uh, quite frankly, but, uh, uh, that recommendation went to the councils, uh, and uh, uh, the council ultimately rejected that recommendation uh, to await and see what the population survey showed uh, for that coming summer survey. Uh, as luck would have it, uh, uh, the survey showed that the population was, in fact, above seven billion. We didn't get into the closure, but it certainly started a debate that I think ultimately, while there was some unpleasant times, it led to, again, an improved coordination and cooperation and a commitment to gain better understanding about harvest dynamics and harvest and populations related to things other than harvest.
4: Ken, what was the year of that? Was it 1968, the spring? 1968, okay. that's correct. And so my... Uh, assuming this number, yeah, this the mallard population, breeding population for that year turned out to be 7,089,000. So yep. just by yep. the skin of its teeth. Now, just to kind <laughs> of to, to, sort uh, of fast forward a few years, and I guess I will say there have been no years that I'm aware of where we have had a full closure of the waterfowl uh, hunting season. There have certainly been some years where it's closed on certain Species, but never a full closure on the entire season. Is that season? Is that right, guys?
1: That that's exactly right.
4: Yeah, and so we can kind of fast forward and look at what what are, uh, what mallard populations have done since then. And you get into the nineteen eighties, and the population fell well below breeding population for mallards fell well below that seven million mark. So something happens along the way in terms of where we adjust those those criteria. And I'm sure we can talk about that as we get get into it but uh but nevertheless yeah so we had that uh, some discussions early in that spring for a potential closure on the waterfowl season do you know ken if there were other flyways that were considering that as well or was this just a mississippi flyway discussion at that time
1: my recollection was that mississippi flyway uh council was the only one that had that guideline and i don't recall any other discussions among other the other flyway councils with regard to this and uh Uh, The discussions that came after that recommendation led to uh, the planning committee going back to the drawing board and basically withdrawing that direction for the technical section.
4: And Dale, you were an active waterfowl hunter at this time, but you were not yet in the profession were you aware, do you recall your your view of the resource and these harvest regulations? Were you, I mean, knowing you, I can imagine you being the type of person that that sought out as many details as possible on what was happening. But what can you tell me about your recollection uh, as a waterfowl hunter during that, that period? Were you aware, uh, keenly, keenly aware of some of these regulations and how they may have been at risk?
2: I wouldn't say keenly aware, but... Uh as a waterfowl hunter, every year, uh, mid to late summer, you began to anticipate based on what you heard and based on early uh, indications of, of numbers and so on, uh, became keenly aware of the upcoming regulations and so on. Um, not to the degree that Ken describes, certainly not the angst that was evident at the flyway meetings themselves, but certainly the outcome. Uh, it was also during this period of time that uh, I began to uh, uh, an association a long-term association uh, with uh, iowa's waterfowl biologist uh, dick bishop um, and as you might imagine the perspective of of breeding ground states was certainly different than those um, uh, in the wintering areas and so some of my perspective i uh, gained uh, from dick and um, and his views and so i was aware from that standpoint not to the degree or to the detail that ken describes here uh, it is good to know um, and i didn't know until today that a lot of this was ken's fault
1: <laughs> <laughs> as long as you give me the uh, credit for uh, correcting it <laughs> <laughs> that's only fair and
2: i think that's that's an important point the flyway management system uh, waterfowl conservation as a whole has been periodically tested um Early 60s, uh, we noted uh, post-war some of the issues that emerged and so on. The strength of waterfall management is, is, is in our response to those periodic tests of the biology, our assumptions, our planning, um, and our application. And so it's important to acknowledge that, that the late 60s was just another test that we emerged from stronger than what we were prior to that.
1: Mike, you know, I I really should point out that even during this time of great disagreement and great consternation among the states, the people who represented those states, both at the flyway council level and at the flyway technical section level, were always professionals. I mean, they, they didn't go into great fights. They didn't degrade people. They listened to one another's viewpoints and again, I think that ultimately led to solutions that might come decades later. But the the fact of respecting that people, as Dale pointed out, people that that set in a, a migration area as compared to a wintering area, as compared to a production area, viewed waterfowl and the waterfowl harvest regulation process entirely differently. But they were willing to try to understand the different perspectives that one another had, and again, I think that uh, provided a very solid foundation upon which the waterfowl profession is built today.
4: Ken, I'm I'm so glad you went there because that's exactly where I was going to go. Dale talked about the strength of the waterfowl management enterprise and how it's built upon our understanding, our science, and our our willingness to confront our. Our previously held beliefs and have these discussions and another, as you pointed out, very important part of, of our success, rest in the people. The people that represent us at every step of the way, whether it be within the states or within the federal government and that are charged with managing this resource. I know I know many many of these people you guys know all these people as well I know them personally I know them professionally they are not in this job because it's going to pay an exorbitant amount of money that is certainly not the case if you're if you're seeking a position in this profession that's one of the first conversations that uh, an academic advisor will tell you is that if you're in this for the money you need to you need to change majors <laughs> they're in it because they <laughs> care about the resource they they it's more than caring it's passionate about the resource most of most of us are waterfowl hunters we're passionate waterfowl hunters we are just like the people that we that we try to represent and uh, that when the get into the state and federal agencies you can view them as you know constituents legitimate constituents but also here within Ducks Unlimited we have our members that we represent and that we respond to and that we depend upon and so uh it's it, it is the strength and the passion of the people that help make this as well uh, such a successful endeavor through the years, and it's it's easy for you know being the one that's making these decisions. It's it's certainly easy uh, to be the one that that catches all the flack, Certainly, if you're a state or federal uh, agency representative, and uh, you know, so I'm I'm sure, and this will lead me to my next question. It, it's it's kind of. It hurts sometimes for me to see that, to see all my friends that I know are really passionate about it, catching all this grief. But I actually know they catch that grief because the people and their constituents care about the resource. We can kind of think about it at the other extreme. If they didn't catch that grief, then that means that nobody cared about the resource. And we would be in a much, much worse place if that were the case. And so, Ken, with that that little statement, you know, how – being a new person in one of these state waterfowl biologist positions, being a waterfowl hunter yourself, and maybe hear a, a bit of a personal, um, personal impression from you, what's that like? Uh, as a waterfowl hunter, knowing that you help make the decisions that determine the waterfowl hunting regulations that a lot of your friends and a lot of your fellow hunters are going to be experiencing during the year, what's what's that like?
1: Well, the the role is a as a as a Technical representative in this waterfowl enterprise is to understand the scientific information as best you can and make a recommendation on the basis of, of what the data tells you with regard to, uh, waterfowl regulations, waterfowl management, other waterfowl management aspects. Uh, and my, my, my job was to make the very best technical recommendation to my flyaway council representative who looked at it more from an administrative standpoint than from a technical standpoint. So uh, I fulfilled, tried to fulfill that role as absolutely best I can. Having later on in my career gotten involved in the administrative end of things and the flyaway council part of it, I came to recognize that uh, my job was to listen to that that technical information and wherever possible utilize that to guide my decision, but also understanding that uh, when you move into the council representative role, you also have to be considerate of what the people want. Uh, you don't want to see what happened. And Dale, Dale described this earlier. You don't want to see the number of waterfowl hunters cut from uh 2 million in the late 50s to a million in the early 60s. You don't want to see that occur. And that decline occurred because of of great loss in opportunity. But where my head was during that period of time was to try to learn as much as I could about waterfowl biology, learn as much as I could about the impacts of harvest, make my recommendation based upon those things, and then support whatever... Decision was ultimately made by the administrative end.
4: Dale, I'm going to ask a similar version of that question to you. Being being a person, a state waterfowl biologist, and having held other positions as well, and you know, if we we've said it a lot of times in this, uh, people in this in this profession say it often that if it wasn't for the people, this thing would be pretty easy. <laughs> uh, uh, and. But but if it weren't for the people, we wouldn't be doing this. That's the other aspect of this that we that is lost on none of us. Um, so how hard is it? And and again, just personally from you, how difficult is it trying to balance what we understand about waterfowl populations or any kind of wildlife population with the way we and the need to sustain those not just not just for the next five years but in perpetuity and recognizing that there's a bit of a fiduciary responsibility here for uh for vastly for for future generations how challenging and difficult is it to make those decisions while trying to balance all of those needs with the, what we understand about the waterfowl populations or population ecology and then what the people
2: want and what the people say they want. You well, know, there's, there's a challenge there, Mike, for sure. Um, perhaps first among those is, is as a, a waterfowl biologist, um, first thing I had to remind myself uh, every time I went to a meeting was that, you know, leave your shotgun at home. Um, you know, the, the fact is that, that I really like to waterfowl hunt, but my responsibility as a professional is with regard to long-term objectives for waterfowl populations for waterfowl habitat and for waterfowl constituency, uh, both those that hunt and those that just enjoy seeing waterfowl. And so that balance of responsibilities, and as Ken pointed out earlier, the professionalism of the people that are involved is just fundamental to this process. Um, Ken also pointed out that as a waterfowl biologist, a technical person, um, I made recommendations. What I found over the years is it's easy to make a recommendation, but it's really hard to make a decision. And so, one of the tougher things over time was to acknowledge that there were times that I was going to make a recommendation that was not agreed to, was not uh, supported by ultimately administration or the Fish and Wildlife Service. And it's that that tug and pull over time that helps us grow as a profession, uh, even though in the near term it may.
4: Dale, I don't recall here if we've already already discussed this, but coming out of that, the potential for a closed season in 1968, um, there was some more explicit recognition of how these decisions intersect with with the people. So, have we talked about that at all? I, I know here in our, our notes there was some explicit recognition that hey, we think a lot about biology, but we also need to be thinking about sociology. Was that was the late 1960s somewhat of a significant turning point in maybe being more thoughtful about that? Or has it, and maybe more thoughtful isn't the right way of saying it, but maybe just more explicit in, in the important role of sociology in these decisions that we're making?
2: Yeah, certainly, Mike. Um, I think the difference beginning in the mid to late 1960s was we were much more explicit about the connection between waterfowl hunters um, and their support and uh, waterfowl populations and waterfowl habitat. Uh, It would be very easy, as we saw decades prior to that, to say, well, the population's going down, so we need to restrict. Population's going up, so we can relax. Uh, But the connection between waterfowl hunters and their support, waterfowl populations and so on, was something that emerged as being more um, explicitly acknowledged. Uh, The fact that um, resource managers' responsibility extended into the field of sociology was something that, uh, that emerged during this late 1960s period. It showed up even more so as we got into the North American Waterfall Management Plan, um, as the development of that began in the late 1970s and into the mid-80s, and uh, certainly even more so today um, with the revision of that plan in the, uh, the 2012. So uh, certainly, Mike, um, the the fact that that waterfowl hunters are an integral part of this process was something that was kind of in the background 50 years ago, emerged as something somewhat more acknowledged during the 60s and today uh, an explicit part of the process.
1: Mike, I'd add to that, uh, that at flyaway council meetings for many, many years, the general public was uh, was, uh, invited to attend to listen to the deliberations and there was always a part of each one of those flyaway meetings where the public was could speak could offer their thoughts could offer their recommendations so uh, the waterfowl management community probably has been ahead of the of the wildlife management uh, profession in general in terms of recognizing the role and the importance of uh, of, of of people in terms of uh, in terms of managing the resource, uh, and, and and certainly Ducks Unlimited has uh, has has been a, a very important ingredient in terms of making those things occur.
4: And Ken, are those those kind of um, public speaking opportunities? Are I don't want to say they're no longer provided, but that's that's no longer a common part of the Flyway
1: Council meetings, right? I, I honestly cannot answer that, Mike. I haven't attended a flyway council meeting in uh, in several years, so I could not I could not answer that. But I I, I will say that the stability of regulations that uh, waterfowl hunters deal with today, uh there's probably not the the desire uh, the need. Uh, now, if we go through another period of of drought, which I'm sure Dale and I both have. If you look back historically, about every ten years you get a major drought in the prairies, and we're probably 20, 25 years between now and the last major drought of any significance. Uh, but uh, it, you know, I, I just, I just think that there is more openness in terms of explaining what's going on and why it's going on, and it's been fairly liberal uh, over these last uh, uh, several years, and for good reason. Uh, it was. Uh, things have been in good shape and hopefully they'll stay that way.
2: Ken makes a really good point there in that um, we for nearly 25 years now really haven't been tested. Um, now, mind you, I think we've learned a fair amount over that period of time and, and are better equipped now to acknowledge the social side of this as well as the biological. Um, but I, I don't know how we will emerge from the next period of drought uh, declines in numbers, declines in hunting opportunity, if that would occur. Um, and our hunters, uh, this day and age, will react to that.
4: Yeah, you would think that if we were going to have a historic drought, it would have happened in 2020. And so I guess I, we can be thankful <laughs> that did not happen. Well, the other thing I want yeah. to say, guys, is that although those public uh, the, the, the opportunity for public input there at the Flyway Council meetings may not uh, may or may not be available right now. What is available across every state that I'm aware of, uh, and I, I would imagine most, if not all, is uh, annual opportunities for uh, for the constituents of those states to provide input on all sorts of wildlife hunting regulation through fair through various venues. So there is at least that opportunity for public input um, in hunting regulations. So those still exist and those still uh, receive a fair bit of participation based on on my reading of it. So let's see as we you know kind of close out the the previous discussion here of the the 1968 season, we ultimately ended up. Ken, you may have said this with the 30day three duck season in the Mississippi Flyway. Ah, uh, with one mallard or twenty days with three ducks um, for a two mallard bag limit. So there were a couple of alternatives offered there. Um, reading here, Dale, it says only Arkansas selected the option with three ducks and a two mallard bag limit. Um, so you could, so they actually chose an additional mallard and gave away ten days. Uh, so, that was interesting. Uh, the Atlantic Flyway was given uh, ended up with 50 days and three ducks. Central Flyway uh, had uh, th- options for 30 days and three ducks, or 35 days and four ducks, two of which can be mallards. And then the, the Pacific Flyway, again on the the more liberal end of the regulation spectrum, 85 days with a five bird bag limits, three of which could be mallards. So there we began to see some species-specific regulations coming into play when it comes to bag limits. Uh, so, uh, also here of note, this is interesting, a special SCOP season of 10 days in the Central Flyway, uh, season within a season. Is that the way I'm reading that, Ken? Is that right? Yep. That would that would probably be the first, would that be the first season within a season?
2: Uh, the
1: first I re- that I recall.
2: Yeah, those beginning in the late 60s, some of the opportunity for additional SCOP um, or SCOP season extensions or additional birds in the bag began to be offered. So, yeah, that was just one of the first instances where we began to acknowledge differences among species and the like.
4: Yeah, thanks for that clarification, Dale. If I would have read the rest of the sentence, I would have realized that. It's a special SCOP season of 10 days. Uh, in the central Flyway and 14 days in the Atlantic and Mississippi outside the regular season with the daily bag limit of, of five so so yeah we began to get a, a, there, you start to see some additional variations in the way we're we're framing uh, harvest regulations in the 19 late 1960s and then we get into an era the 19 uh, the 68-69 season where there was a, a very important addition and it's it is a a harvest regulation system that a lot of our listeners uh, will will have at least heard about and I know at least some of them will have participated in it's something that that I actually remember I don't recall if I hunted under this system I think I did but I certainly recall my dad talking about it and it's the point system and there's a lot that we can talk about here and you know we what we may do is this has been a This was a regulatory system, an alternative that was offered and received a great deal of study. And so what I might do is get one of those people that was actually involved in one of those studies to to join us on one of these episodes and talk in more detail about that point system. But perhaps to close out this episode here, Ken, I want to... Talk to you about that. Tell us your recollections around the, the origination of the point system and kind of how that came about. I believe it first appeared in 68 or 69.
1: Yeah, and, uh, you know, uh, it, it appeared, and I think Dale mentioned earlier that uh, this was first tested uh, in the San Luis Valley in Colorado. And uh, uh, where it was just basically a way that you reward hunters uh, who can identify waterfowl in flight by giving them letting their bag limit be uh, determined by the point value of the ducks that they that they take where birds that you want to uh reduce the harvest or keep the harvest low they have higher point values so there's an incentive not to shoot them and uh with the tests were done uh, uh and they were reported to all the flyway councils uh, across the country and to the US Fish and Wildlife Service and ultimately it moved into an operational uh, offer in at least three of the flyways. I'm not sure that the Pacific Flyway ever got uh, involved in that, but they always had pretty liberal uh, bag limits anyway. But one of the other things I think that's important to point out uh, in this period, Mike, is we went from talking about closing the waterfowl hunting season in 1968 uh, in the Mississippi Flyway to uh, an offer of 55 days of hunting By 1970, two years later, and again, based upon the fact that habitat conditions had improved, led to increased populations from the breeding side and more liberal regulations. So uh, uh, I think it's important to point that out that we got through that very difficult period of time uh, uh, and found ourselves in a situation where it was kind of launching into a new era of of waterfowl management in the 70s. The point system was one element, but there was also discussion about stabilized regulations that ultimately would be tested and other aspects of trying to provide optimum, if not maximum, hunting opportunity for waterfowl while at the same time ensuring sustainability of long-term population health.
4: One thing that I'll that I'll do here, Ken, is just for those people that uh, that aren't too familiar with the point system, as you as you talked about, it, I'll provide an example. And this is going to be an example that's that's featured in a forthcoming uh, article in the DU magazine where we're talking about pintails and how the point system regulations was implemented relative to their populations. This was back at the time when pintail populations were. Uh, quite a bit higher than they are today, and for example, in in um, the Central Flyway, there was uh, one of the years. Maybe it was 1979, as we used as an example. Uh, the total total point allowance was 100, and then each of these species of birds of ducks was assigned a different point value. And so then, you know, based on which, as you described, which of these that you're harvesting, you know, that counts towards your 100 uh, your your 100 point total. Pintails. Back in 1979, people are not going to believe this, but it's true, In uh, at least in the Central Flyway, Drake pentails were a 10-point bird, dime ducks, as I think people referred to them back then. So that would have meant that out of a total allowance of 100 points, you could legally harvest Ten Drake pintails. I believe pintail uh, hen pintails were twenty points, but that kind of gives you an idea of how this point system works. Is that uh, some of the species that you wanted to direct harvest pressure away from were given higher points, and thus meaning you can you could harvest fewer of those. Uh, so for those that may not be aware of the point system, that's just a general framework of how it works. Now there are some issues with that, which is certainly part of a Uh, Of a worthwhile conversation, but anyway, that's just to introduce that, and we'll talk about that in a bit more detail on the on the next episode. So, Dale, uh, we're going to wrap up here. Uh, Time flies on these episodes, I I tell you.
1: Before you wrap this up, uh, it should be noted that there one person on this call did shoot ten Drake pentails one day, and it was not me. Is that right? It was a a
2: pretty neat thing, actually. (laughs)
1: <laughs> the uh, I, the arkansas came out in me and i couldn't pass up those drake mallards <laughs> it uh
2: it certainly was an interesting era and uh, when when the point system was first tried in 1970 in a broader manner um i was hunting in north iowa and uh, and as you point out mike uh, drake pintails were worth 10 hen pintails worth 20 that occurred for three years um and uh it was uh it was a pretty interesting time and kind of made hunters uh, more cognizant of birds identified in flight as opposed to in hand. And so there was some real elegant parts of that uh, point system during those early years. Uh, and I did my graduate work on, uh, on mallards uh, and in testing the point system. Uh, the assumption is that uh, drape mallards aren't important as uh, extra males in the reproduction process. And so uh, in uh, my graduate work, we removed uh, nests uh, and identified whether or not uh, hen mallards who lost their nest went back to their original male or with one of the males that had identified not being with a hen before. And so throughout that process, we tested some basic assumptions about the point system, that being that uh, extra males aren't important in the population and so, it, kind of an interesting era if you talk about um, the point system, what was intended, uh, and then ultimately uh, down the road, uh, some of the concerns, the criticisms from the enforcement standpoint.
1: Yeah, it, 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 uh, it was a system that uh, uh, I think went by the wayside because of, of enforcement concerns. The element of being able to reorder your birds uh, in order to achieve the maximum number of birds in the bag. Uh, was of great concern to conservation officers uh, across the country, um, but in, in my opinion, that was probably no much, no more of a problem than uh, than party hunting, where you know one guy shoots two limits and one guy doesn't shoot any. So uh, it was unfortunate, but the, uh, at a time when populations declined again, and they became concerned about more restrictive regulations into the into the early mid-80s, uh, the point system demise was inevitable, I guess.
4: Yeah, to put a finer point on that, Ken, for those people that may not be aware of how that would work, the reordering, let's say, for example, we had a uh, total allowance of 100 points. There were some uh, species-sex combinations where that an individual bird was worth, worth 100 points, and I think uh, Hen Mallard was uh, was an example of that, right? Uh, Ninety.
1: As I recall, 90. it was ninety. Yeah. ninety on
4: hen mallards. Nine. Okay, and so if you, so if you had in your bag four drake pintails, each at, uh, well, let me go at it this way: if the first bird you shot was a hen mallard, that's ninety points towards your total one hundred. Then you know you would only be allowed one additional bird in the ten point category, whereas if you told law enforcement, "Hey, no, I I shot these." I shot these four drake pintails uh, before I shot that hen mallard because that was the one other aspect of it is the final bird that you shot could put you over the limit and you're still fine. Is that right? That's correct.
2: The elegance of the point system was that if you satisfied the biological concerns, and that was whether or not drakes were important to re-nesting hens, then it assumed uh, that hunters, in fact, selected drakes over hens, that they abided by the intent of the regulation, and the real elegance of the system was they only had to identify the bird in hand. They didn't have to identify them as they have to today if there's species specific regulations in the air. And so that it was really a pretty elegant system except for the concerns about uh, enforcement.
4: I'm glad that, I'm glad Ken, that you shared that that nugget of information about (laughs) Dale uh, having actually harvested. (laughs) I I did not call a name. But was it (laughs) Well, I know it wasn't me. (laughs) and uh, but So I could just imagine, had I not not known that, had we not had this conversation, what Dale would have been thinking whenever he picks up that DU magazine here in a couple of months and reads that story about this hunter coming out of a marsh carrying 10 Drake pintails over his shoulder. So you might have thought that somebody had done told on you.
2: It wasn't a common occurrence in northern states. It wasn't an uncommon occurrence as you move to uh, the latitudes where pintails predominate.
1: My my brother lived in uh, Beaumont, Texas, during that time frame, and one of his best friends owned one of the really finest marshes uh, in that area, and it was not uncommon at all for them to shoot ten pintails apiece. Uh, this is a, an amazing aspect of the conversation because in the
4: article, uh, we we actually the the little vignette that we describe at the beginning occurs somewhere on the Texas coast in 1979, and so we wrote that article. Before any of these conversations, but that just <laughs> kind of lend some credence to our thinking that we had it right, and in the the way the description goes there, so that's pretty cool. So people can look forward to that coming out. I think in January, or February, an article on pintails uh, does reference the some of the harvest regulations that are in place for that species and how they have changed through the years. Uh, so it ties in nicely with some of these podcasts here. So thanks for that, guys. Uh, we we are going to continue on on our next episode. We still have other things to discuss, and I think I've even heard reference to somewhere along the ways the goose Wars, and I believe that might have been Dale's <laughs> favorite time in his career. Do I have that right, Dale?
2: I've tried to forget, but thanks for reminding me, Mike. <laughs>
4: <laughs> well, thank you, guys, for continuing with this. This. Uh, Interesting discussion, relevant discussion. It's always fun and appropriate to look back on where we have been relative to where we are today and, and certainly to pay homage to the people that, that served important roles all throughout this process. You two are among those. And I thank you for all of the work that you did through the years personally and on behalf of all of our other hunters and members. And so, uh, yeah, thanks to you guys for that. And thanks for sharing all of these important stories and entertaining stories to come uh, on this important topic. So thank you guys.
1: Thank you, Mike. You bet, Mike.
4: A special thanks to our guest on today's episode. Return guest now for, I think this is episode six. They're starting to all run together, Dale Humberg and Ken Babcock. And uh, as always, we thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the work that he does putting these episodes together and getting them out to you. And of course, you, the listeners, we thank you for your interest in the podcast. And most importantly, we thank you for your support, passion and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation.